0: Galatians chapter 3, in this letter, and for the next couple of chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul now lays out the only way, the only way to receive grace, and it is by faith. There is no other way to get it. You cannot purchase the grace of God. You can't earn it. You can only receive it. By faith, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And that's the doctrinal hub of all of Paul's letters. If you want to think of it that way, the heart of his letters, there is no other gospel but the gospel of grace. And there is no other way to receive it but by faith. You understand that much? You get the heart of Paul's letters. No other gospel but the gospel of grace and no other way to receive it but by faith. And so tonight, Father, we pray that we would receive the gospel by faith. That we would receive Your grace. And that in these words of Paul, at times challenging, at other times profound, that we would be moved and changed, not, Lord, by word, but by revelation of Your Spirit. That the grace that you have offered, that we have received by faith in you, would grow in us to such a degree that we cannot keep the grace from spilling out of us. Holy Spirit, come and teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I will give you a brief outline for chapter 3 and how we're going to follow it through tonight. Three main sections that we'll look at and consider. The opening section is what I would call six questions. The second part is six verses, and then finally one seed. And that's it for tonight. Six questions, six verses, one seed. We begin with six questions. They're rhetorical questions that Paul asks that he writes to stir up the embers of a faith that has been doused by cold, wet law. To stir up faith. And Paul begins, and I want to read all six questions right here in the opening verses. Number one, you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Question number two. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of law or by hearing with faith? Third question. Are you so foolish? Fourth question. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Fifth question. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And finally, the sixth question. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by works of law or by hearing with faith? One question after another, all of them assume the answers. Now the very first one, you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, and of course then the third question, are you so foolish, might seem a little harsh on the page. You foolish Galatians, well it's actually rather than you foolish Galatians, it should really be translated, oh foolish Galatians. Maybe that doesn't make that much difference to you. It does to me. Oh, foolish Galatians, Paul writes. And this word for foolish, same word Jesus used when he was talking to the two men en route to Emmaus, the night of his resurrection. You remember the story. They're they're walking along and they're talking about what had happened. And we're told in Luke 24, verse 18, that one of them, Cleopas, said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? <laughs> and so they begin to recount to Jesus all the things. In fact, they recount to Jesus the death and burial of Jesus. And then they go on to talk about, and some among our number, some of the women went down to the tomb this morning, and He wasn't there. And they're claiming that He has risen. And they're sharing all these things with the very Lord who had gone through them first person. I think it's hilarious. And he's walking along with them and he said to them, Luke twenty four twenty five, "O foolish men, O foolish men, it's slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And so it's the same word, O foolish, O foolish Galatians, O foolish men. And it's not as harsh a word as you might think. It's not an invective. If you wanted to say, you fools, you'd say, you moros, where we get the word moron. That's what you would say in the Greek morons but that's not what Paul says he says instead anōetos anōetos like a know-it-all you know but a know-it-all usually doesn't know it all so anōetos in the Greek and it literally means someone who is lacking understanding though they have received learning you have the answer But you're not living by it. You're not applying it. In other words, it's like saying, you should know better. Oh, foolish Galatians, you know better than this. You know better. And the foolishness, both there on the road to Emmaus and here to the churches in Galatia, is of those who do know better. Paul even calls them bewitched. An interesting translation. What it really comes from is a word that that, that, that means hypnotized. Who's hypnotized you? Who's charmed you like a charmer would charm a snake? Because of their blind acceptance of this legalistic teaching that's now come in after Paul's teaching as he went through the regions of Galatia teaching grace. How can you be going back to this? Oh, foolish Galatians, apply what you know. You're not applying it. What you're hearing is in stark contrast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel they'd already received. He says in that first question also that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That is to say, put up on a banner, like a huge billboard on the side of the road. In other words, Paul's saying, when I was there with you, I spared no words in describing to you exactly what happened. You know of the cross. It was graphically depicted before you, before your very eyes, so you should understand this. And it's like us. I mean, anyone who's given their life to Jesus has a view of the cross, has a sense of the pain, of the sorrow, of, of, of the sacrifice that Jesus went through. And I could almost see Paul, honestly, sometimes in a church service in America on a Sunday morning looking around and going, You foolish Christians! Don't you realize the same Jesus who was publicly portrayed before you was crucified? No, I wasn't at the crucifixion. Neither were the Galatians. But they knew, and they had seen, and they understood the serious nature of this sacrifice and what it had purchased. So, Paul is indicating more than just a transfer of classroom information they were exposed to the beautiful and brutal truth of the cross and what happened there at Calvary. And so the questions continue. The second question being, the only thing I want to find out from you is, did you receive the Spirit by the works of law or by hearing with faith? And the third question, like it, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so let's translate that to us tonight. When you were born again, how did you do that? What did you do? I mean, think about it. What did you do to accomplish your born againness? What part did you play in becoming born again? I mean, it was just a work of the Spirit, right? It was not your work. You know, you know what I did when I was born again? I showed up. All I know is I was there. And God did the work. His Spirit moved. And here's what Paul is getting at. Flesh cannot produce Spirit. Only Spirit can produce Spirit. Flesh can't do it. Even flesh came by the breath of the Spirit of God. So even flesh exists because of Spirit. Think all the way back. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Flesh was formed by spirit. God is spirit. Jesus said, and those who worship him right, must worship him in spirit and truth. So spirit formed flesh. Spirit can do that. Flesh cannot form spirit. It never works the opposite way. And in fact, if you think about it, it was neither the chicken nor the egg. What came first? The Spirit of God came first. The Spirit came and formed the substance of the physical world, even formed the substance of the first man, Adam, and breathed life into him. The Spirit bringing about life. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.45, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus, a life-giving spirit. Because spirit can form flesh, and spirit can form spirit. But flesh can do neither one. Well, flesh can birth flesh. But flesh cannot birth spirit. Now, I'm sitting on that a little bit, and we're actually going to come back to this and spend quite a bit of time on it on Sunday morning. Because we have this notion in Christianity that somehow flesh can produce spirit. That there are certain things I can do to be more filled with the Spirit of God. We Christians continue to attempt to perfect our spiritual lives through fleshly exercise. But flesh can't produce spirit. Only spirit can do that. Well, so then what do I do, Rick? You ask the spirit to do it. Because you can't. I can't. See so what we do in the church is we put more books on the shelf. We go to more conferences. Put those on the calendar. We, we develop more laws and more traditions and more religion and all of that just leads to more guilt in the gut. Because we can't keep up and we can't keep doing And after a while we get worn out or people burn out. People serving in ministries and church just finally say, I just can't keep doing it. And they resign, and then they feel guilty because, wow, I thought I was going to be more spiritual by signing up for children's ministry. Let me tell you something. Children's ministry will not make you more spiritual except that it teaches you patience. I'm not saying don't serve. I'm not saying don't be involved. I'm just saying that all of our involvement, all of our ministry, all of our work has to come from the motivation of grace by the power of the Spirit. But none of these things we do, these religious exercises, can produce more Spirit. Only the Spirit can do that. So to be more spiritual requires us to go to the Spirit. By the way, even in charismatic circles, You know what you tend to see? I mean, the evangelical who puts nose to the grindstone and works hard because you got to. Or the Catholic who puts nose to the grindstone because if you're not working, you're going to feel guilty. Or the charismatic, where the emphasis, and if you come from a charismatic background, you know this. The emphasis tends to be on the look of holiness and individual spiritual gifts. So you got to work the gifts. And you've got to have the, the whole spiritual thing going on. And, and that's why they're called like the holiness movement. I've got to be more holy. And so life becomes strict and legalistic and rigid. And suddenly you start to wonder, I thought that where the Spirit is, there is liberty. But I'm very uptight trying to make it all work and hold it all together. Only the Spirit can produce Spirit. Pray about that this week. I want to encourage you to ponder it. And join me in praying about it and and in thinking it through. And we're going to come back and talk about it some more on Sunday morning. Just remember that. Only the Spirit can birth Spirit. Uh, Verse 4. Next question. The fifth question. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now, this is an interesting use of the word suffer. Did you suffer? The word can be translated two different ways. One way is hardship, which is what you'd expect. Did you suffer so many things in vain? Paul certainly suffered in Galatia. In southern Galatia, just outside the town of Lystra, you might remember his body was tossed after he'd been stoned and left for dead. They threw him outside of Lystra. Everybody heads back into the town. His disciples gather around Paul. He's dead as a doornail. And then he opens his eyes, takes a deep breath, gets up and goes right back into the city to preach some more. It was at Lystra that that happened. Paul was severely persecuted in this missionary journey through Galatia. And so it wouldn't be surprising if the churches planted in Galatia themselves went through quite a bit of persecution too. So Paul may be referencing that. Did you suffer so many things in vain? All all that you've gone through, all the pain and difficulty and, and persecution... For nothing? That's one way to consider it. I tend to lean the other way because the word for suffer here not only means hardship, but can also simply mean experience. Did you experience so many things in vain? And the context, I think, indicates the meaning is experience. In other words, did you experience so many things in vain? Experience of the Holy Spirit and His supernatural works among them. Why would you say that, Rick? Well, because of the next question. Because then he goes on to say, So then does He who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of law or by hearing with faith? Either way, whether it was hardship or simply the experience of supernatural work among them, they had experienced so much. Paul's saying, you know this is legit. You know everything that's taken place here is true. Do you know it in vain? Are you so foolish? And then of course he finishes with that sixth question. He who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of law or by hearing with faith? And notice that final question answers the previous five. It's by hearing with faith. That's the answer. Six rhetorical questions answered by the sixth question. They had received it all by hearing with faith. They had received grace by hearing with faith. They had received spiritual gifts by hearing with faith. They had received supernatural works among them by hearing with faith. And they had grown spiritually by hearing with faith. Not by works of law. So the works of law that have been brought in are completely contrary to everything that they had not only been taught and heard, but experienced. Grace is the free gift. Faith is how it's received. So that's the six questions. And what Paul indicates in this marvelous letter is the times of Torah are over. Well, I'm not saying you can't learn from Torah. Don't get me wrong. I'm not undermining the value of Scripture or saying that even one iota of the Word of God passes away. It does not. But the times of Torah have passed. Grace has arrived. The law, though perfect, and I will underscore that tonight, the law, though perfect as an expression of God Himself, was given because it could not be kept. God intentionally brought the perfect law which was unkeepable by man. Why? So that when grace came, we'd go, Oh, now I get it. And we would receive it gladly. Now, Paul goes back to explain this. In fact, he goes pre-law. After asking the six questions, now he's going to put up five verses straight out of Torah and then one out of the prophets to reignite their faith. So, six questions, now six verses. Verse 6. Even so, Abraham, quote, believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's the first verse, Genesis 15, 15, verse 6. Therefore, be sure, it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Genesis 12, verse 3. Second verse. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Abraham the believer. So what was it exactly that Abraham believed? Turning your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, verse 1 which says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. How does a word come in a vision? Let me suggest to you that the word was Jesus. word came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Or, technically, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. But Abram misses the fact that God's saying, I am your reward, and says, well, O Lord God, what will you give me? Since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, his manservant. And Abram said, since you've given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your air. And he took him outside and said, "Now look toward the heavens. Count the stars. If you're able to count them," and he said to him, "So shall your descendants be." The word descendants, seed So shall your offspring, your descendants, your seed be. And then, verse 6, he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed in the impossible seed. No way this was going to happen to Abraham. You see this old guy? He's done, man. Have you seen his wife? It's not going to happen. This is an old man's body, and yet this old man gazed at the stars and believed that God was going to make it happen. Which required one thing of Abraham, and that was a germinating seed of faith. He didn't need a lot of faith, just enough to go, well, okay, God's talking to me first of all, and He's telling me this is going to happen. So, okay Lord, you say it, I believe it. And so Abraham believed, and the Lord, the Bible tells us, reckoned it, that is, gave it to Abraham as a credit. He credited him with righteousness. Abraham wasn't righteous. Read the story of his life. But God said, hey, but you trust me. And because you trust me, I credit you with righteousness. I will look at you that way. Again, as Paul's pointing out, Abraham didn't do anything. He just believed He just trusted. On the other hand, go back to Galatians. The law, Torah, for all its perfection, can only do one thing. Curse. It can only curse. Verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed, Is everyone who does not abide, note this, by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Deuteronomy 27 verse 26. All things. See now this is underscored in the law. It makes it brutally clear. All things. No exceptions. So if you're gonna live by the law, no exceptions. You have to keep not most of the law, not a large portion of the law, all of it. All the law. If you miss one thing, if you mess up the smallest letter or stroke, you're out, you're dead, you're cursed. That's it. All things must be kept if you're going to keep the law. The law is perfect. But we are not. Verse 11. He goes on and says, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. That's the fourth verse, and that is from the prophets Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. That verse, above all others, stirred the heart of Martin Luther. When he saw it quoted by Paul uh, more than once, when he read that verse, when he considered it, It led Martin Luther out of his brutal self-discipline. I mean, as a monk, he was was worse on himself than anybody possibly could be. Self-flagellations, crawling on bloodied knees for miles as penance for the sin that was in his life until he finally discovered this truth, the righteous man shall live by faith. Grace came. And for Martin Luther, grace replaced law By faith, all I must do is trust the Lord, believe in the Lord, and He gives the grace that I can't earn. But long before Luther, Habakkuk was troubled. The nation of Judah was in an irreversible decline. Sound familiar? Everything seemed to be going contrary to God, downhill. This is around 606 B.C., 605 perhaps, just prior to the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. Already people were being carted off to Babylon. Already Babylon was bearing down on the nation of Judah. Things are going badly, and Habakkuk sees this, and he prays, God, intervene! Intervene for Your people! In fact, what's marvelous about the prophecy of Habakkuk is it's a conversation it's back and forth between Habakkuk and the Lord Habakkuk prays, the Lord responds he prays again, the Lord responds but what's ironic is Habakkuk prays for intervention and the Lord says you got it, I will intervene for your nation, you're going to Babylon and Habakkuk responds to that oh, wait a minute, no, no, that, no that's not what I'm asking for here I'm praying for awakening. You know? I'm praying for divine moment. I'm praying for the country to come back alive. And you're saying we're going to go to Babylon. That's not what I was asking, Lord. I mean, they're worse than we are. And so, Habakkuk replies this way and then positions himself to hear the Lord's response. Listen to it. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2, And then the Lord answered me, and He said, Record the vision, and inscribe it on the tablets, that the one who reads it may run. He says, For the vision is yet for the appointed time, it hastens toward the goal, it will not fail, though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Now, we often use that prophecy, kind of as a, as a, uh, a meme maybe for prophecy. That when God says He's gonna do something, He'll do it. It it hastens toward the goal, God's word will not fail, God's promises will not fail, and so we take it in the positive sense. Habakkuk didn't hear it that way. What he heard was, it hastens toward the goal, Babylon's coming. We are going down. This will be fulfilled. It's terrible. It's horrible. This is the truth that we face. But the Lord sums the whole thing up saying, but, but, the righteous will live by faith. Even in Babylon, those carted off, and you know them, men like Ezekiel, men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego these who would be carted off to Babylon and yet even there in captivity would live by faith would trust that the Lord was going to do what He said and by the way the vision that hastened toward the goal included the end of Babylonian captivity a very positive thing 70 years later and it was Daniel who figured that out who's praying and says wait a minute I'm reading through the scroll of Jeremiah. I realized, Daniel chapter 9, I realized time's almost over. And so I set myself to pray to the Lord. And He began to pray, and and we get the amazing prophecy of Daniel 9. I won't go into that. If you want to hear it, go to Glenn's study on Sunday night. But what God's saying is, in essence, Habakkuk. Trust me. I've got this. It's not the way you think it should go, but it's the way I have deemed it to go. By the way, following that call for Habakkuk to trust Him, you read in the book of Habakkuk, five earth silencing woes. Paul says the righteous will trust Him to do what's right. Come hell or high water, God is going to do the right thing. Trust Him. The righteous man, the righteous woman will live by faith. Verse 12, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. The law depends on you to keep it or on me to keep it. I have to do it. He quotes Leviticus 18, verse 5. So you shall keep My statutes and My judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. So here's My law. Good luck. Got to keep it all. How's your doing going, by the way, just in your Christian life? Certain things maybe you want to get better at or do better, or certain ways you want to present yourself as more spiritual? The reality is, if you are wallowing in guilt, you are missing grace. On the other hand, if you think you're pretty much getting it down, doing pretty well, you have been bewitched. Oh, foolish Galatians. Let me give you a couple examples. When I practice my guitar, which I do from time to time, I have good days Yesterday was one of those. I pulled out my guitar and I was playing, and I could not play a bad note. It was stunningly beautiful. (laughs) I was impressing myself. I'm like, we don't need Rachel. What am I doing here? (laughs) And I was enjoying it. It was marvelous. And there are those days where it's just clicking and everything's right. About a week ago, I pulled out my guitar and played, and it just was terrible. And my hand hurt and every note, and I just... My rhythm was... I just didn't... It wasn't clicking for me. Sometimes are good. Sometimes are bad. Some practice is good. Some practice... Just not... I just want to put the darn thing away. When I played basketball, in high school especially, on my high school basketball team, wow, there were the glory days. Those are the ones that I remember. You know? The games where I was the clutch player. The high point scorer. You know? I remember those... I share those things with my kids. But there's something I don't often tell my children, and that was the one word that my coach had for me. I know the word because he yelled it at me all the time. Inconsistent! You're so inconsistent! Oh, Rick, you have these marvelous days, and then you have these days where I wish you were just on the bench the whole game. Inconsistent! Love that guy, Coach Minear. He's dead now. practice as I would. There were days that were glorious and there were days when I was chucking bricks at the rim. And that's the way it is. That is life. And so when you're handed this perfect law, there are days where, hey, you're doing pretty good. You haven't cursed at anybody. You haven't killed anybody today. Haven't committed adultery in the last 12 hours. I mean, you're doing pretty good. But Try to keep it perfectly every day and you're going to have your bad days. And here's the thing, inconsistency marks the flesh in every one of us. None of us are flawlessly consistent. You can lay out the law, you can study the law, you can try to live by the law, and it will only curse you and kill you because you can't keep it all. And that's the point that Paul continues to make here. Because the law demands, the perfect law, demands perfect consistency. In verse 13 he says, but note this, Christ redeemed us from the curse, bought us out of the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That graphic picture, that fascinating law, to be honest. It's the sixth verse of the six verses in Paul's teaching here. Go back and look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 21. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, fifth book in Torah. Go back there real quickly, Deuteronomy chapter 21. You know, when we studied through these five books at the beginning of Scripture, what was amazing to me was to understand the relevancy of laws that would seem irrelevant. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Well, you might have thought when you were a Hebrew living in the days before Jesus, that's a pretty good law because no one wants to see a body hanging there, you know. I saw the beginning of Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, the bodies are hanging there and the bird plucks the eyeball out and it's kind of gross. So yeah, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Let's just get those bodies cut down as quick as we can, right? It made sense, perhaps, at that level. But it's a really weird law. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree? What about the idiot who falls off a cliff? I'd call him cursed. You know, But it's, it's specific. Listen to it. Deuteronomy 21.22 If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on a tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. So that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. By the way, the reason why the Romans hung people up on crosses and let them hang there for days on end was to defile the land. It was an offense. If you were a Jew walking down the street, it wasn't just horrific to see your fellow Jews hung up on crosses. It was a defilement of your land cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Now, two times this law, perhaps more, but there are two specific times in Scripture where this law finds its fulfillment, both by sons of David. The first one was David's son named Absalom. You can read the story, Absalom's Rebellion. It's a long story, kind of the history of Absalom and David's messed up family dysfunction. But Absalom ends up rebelling against his father and against the kingdom. He ends up trying to usurp the throne. He gathers around himself fighting men in an army of his own. They begin to fight back and actually at one point drive David out completely. David's men fight and the battle rages on. And in 2 Samuel 18, Absalom, that handsome, bold, long-haired, hippie son of David... He's wildly riding, uh, on his, well, he's riding on a mule, so I'm not sure how fast he could really be going. But he's on a mule, his hair flowing behind him in the heat of battle, and his mule ran under the thick branches of an oak tree, and that long hair of Absalom got stuck up in the tree, and the mule kept on going. If it wasn't so tragic, it would be comedic. Because now you've got Absalom hanging from this oak tree by his hair, Apparently, he's dropped his sword because if he had his sword, you'd think he'd just cut himself free. And he's stuck hanging there. And one of David's servants sees him, goes to Joab, the the field commander, and says, Absalom's hanging by his hair in a tree. (laughs) Excuse me? (laughs) He says, yeah, he's hanging up. He's stuck in this oak tree. And Joab says, well, kill him. And of course, the servant says, far be it from me. I will not kill the, the king's son. So Joab, chosen by David himself, spears Absalom through the heart three times. After spearing him through the heart, Joab's armor bearers gather around Absalom, ten young armor bearers, and they beat him to death while he hangs there. It is a brutal, vile death. Son of David. And when David found out, he wept bitterly. He he cried out. 2 Samuel 18.33, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David said, I wish I was the one who had died for your rebellion. Get it? You see, that's what the second son of David, the other son of David, Jesus Christ, did. He died on the tree for our rebellion. He did not die in rebellion. No, he was perfect. He was speared through. He too was hung on a tree, not by His hair, but by nails. And Jesus too, let's publicly portray Him as crucified. He was cursed. Not for His own sin, but for yours. For mine. And listen, for the sin of all humanity. And I don't think I'm going too far to say even the sin of those who have not accepted His grace. You see, John tells us in 1 John chapter 2 that He died for the sins of the whole world. Which as we talked about, is not universal salvation. It's universal grace. It is universal invitation. It is a universal offer. His blood is sufficient. And He took on His shoulders the sin of all mankind and the wrath of God on the cross of Calvary. Hung up on the tree, Jesus Christ, our perfect Lord Jesus, a cursed man, so that we might be saved. Acts chapter 5 verse 30, Peter said, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. And of course, what did Jesus say prophetically? John 12 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Peter would later write in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. That's grace. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, and he did. And all the curse that should be yours should be mine by law he took so that we no longer live by law and by curse. We live by grace through faith. Verse 15, back in Galatians 3. Now Paul goes on. He says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So now we're back to the pre-law argument of Paul, the pre-law covenant with Abraham. And Paul's just making another example. He's saying, look, even human legal documents are supposed to be sealed, right? I mean, once you sign it, it's done. It goes into law and and it's held there and you don't go back and change it. And so it is with the promises spoken by covenant to Abraham pre-law. Verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Watch this. He does not say and to seeds as referencing to many but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Mm -hmm. One seed. That's part three. One seed. This this verse blows replacement theology out the door. Just completely blows it away. Listen, the church is not the seed of Abraham. The one seed of the promise is, (laughs) it's not you. It's not me. It's Not even believing Israel, the seed of Abraham? And it is certainly not some replacing church. It's one seed. The one seed of the promise is Christ Jesus. And Paul points this out, and I actually, I kid you not, I double-checked him. I mean, I'm reading this and he says, he doesn't say seeds plural, he says "seed" singular and that is Christ. And I'm like, oh, okay, wait a minute, Paul. I'm going to check you on that one. It's <laughs> a little hubris there in my office. I'm going to double check Paul. I did. He's right. He's right. It's one seed. It's singular seed. The seed of Abraham is singular. Always is in the promises. Well, let me prove it to you. Let's go on a little botanical, biblical journey, okay? You go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. You Bible students know this. It is the proto-evangelicum, or first gospel. First time we see in Scripture that there's a a hint, an intimation that the gospel is going to happen, and God is speaking to the serpent in the garden. And He says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he, that is her seed shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And it is a stunning verse filled with profound depth of meaning. You know, first of all, that she would have a seed is weird because women don't have a seed. They have an egg. So this is already something supernatural, something miraculous. A woman is going to have a seed. And I'm going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of of Satan, of the devil... And you're going to bruise him on the heel. And of course, railroad spikes through feet would cause bruising all around the feet and on the heel. But he, he's going to bruise you on the head. In other words, he's taking you down. And this one seed is going to do it. That's the first mention of the one seed who becomes then the seed of promise. Two thousand years ago by. From the garden to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. The Lord appears to Abraham. He says, To your descendants I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Only it's not descendants, bad translation. It's seed, singular. To your seed I will give this land. And so he built the altar there, the one seed. My friends, while I agree and support the idea that the land belongs to Israel, it only belongs to Israel because it belongs to Israel's savior, Jesus Christ. The land belongs to Jesus. God says, I'm going to enter into judgment with the nations of the world, Joel chapter 3, because they have divided up Israel's land. No, they have divided up my land. The land was given to the seed, the one seed, and the one seed is Christ. And that's the promise, the very first promise made to Abraham when he's still Abram in Genesis 12. Go forward a thousand years from there. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. God tells His prophet Natan, Go to David, and thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Second Samuel 7, verse 8, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And then in verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, that is singular, your seed. There's the seed of promise again. I will raise up your seed, which is the seed of Abraham, now through David, your seed after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom, the one seed. The promise continues to be to the one seed, Jesus Christ. In Matthew twenty-two, so another thousand years go by, and Jesus is having one of those fascinating conversations with the Pharisees, and they're gathered together and he asked them a question. Matthew twenty-two, forty-two, he said, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Of course, they immediately pop off, my translation. The son of David! Ha Answered. Verse forty-three. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord saying the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet if David then calls him Lord how is he his son wow look at the time Lord Uh, we'll get back to you on that one We're told in verse 46 of Matthew 22, no one was able to answer Him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask Him another question. (laughs) The one seed. How is it possible that the seed, the one seed of Abraham, now the one seed of David, how is it possible that David calls this seed Lord? And the reality is, forgive me for this, the one seed preceded (laughs) David. He came first. He came before David. He came after David. Jesus said in Revelation 22:16, "I am the root and the descendant of David, I am the bright and morning star, the one seed." Jesus Christ is the seed of promise. And once you realize that, that's why, you know, I'm not just gunning for replacement theology, although it makes me sick, but I'm not just trying to, you know, shut down One kind of theology. But to point out to you, it it can't be possible that the church is the seed of Abraham because Jesus is. Jesus is. And all Jew or Gentile who put their faith in Mashiach, Jesus Christ. Lockyer, in his book, All the Messianic Prophecies of the Bible, said this. He said, with the first direct messianic prophecy in the Bible, there commenced the highway of the seed. What God has said about the seed of woman, Genesis 3.15, constitutes the Bible in embryo, the sum of all history and prophecy in a germ. For here is intimated not only the virgin birth of Christ but also His vicarious sufferings you shall bruise His heel. And His complete and eventual dominion over Satan and His works He shall bruise your head. So from the beginning the promise was given to the singular seed, Jesus Christ. Now listen, that's key because there's only one way to get to the promise. In Jesus You cannot get the promise of the seed, the promise of Abraham, the blessing of all the Gentiles. You can't get there unless you go to Jesus and through Jesus who Himself is the bearer and owner of the promise. And what did Jesus do? He offered to share the promise. He died taking the curse that we might have grace. And so we come to Jesus for grace. Well, alright Paul, I'm reading your letter. The the, the agitators, the the guys preaching law, what about the law? Why was the law given? I mean, if if it was all going to be through the one seed and and the seed is Jesus and, and we just trust Him and that's it, why were we given the law in the first place? Great question, Paul answers in verse 17. What I'm saying is this the law which came 430 years later, that is after Abram was promised to the one seed, 430 years later, the law does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. The law didn't come along and replace the previous promise. The previous promise stands, Paul says. And any thinking Jewish person would say, of course it does. No, the law does not violate... The covenant of Abraham, verse 18. For if the the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. The promise came first. Well, why the law then? And that's the question, isn't it? It was added because of transgressions, Paul says having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Anything to break that one down? It's an interesting verse. Now the first part makes sense because we heard Paul say the same thing in Romans chapter 5. The law was added so sin would increase. And as he says here, it was added because of transgressions. God brought the law to reveal the sin. To show that for all the practice of holiness, we still couldn't keep it. He wanted to make that clear point. You're just never going to be good enough. You need my grace. You need my forgiveness. So the first part of the verse is fine, but then he goes on and says, speaking of the law, it was ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So the seed is Jesus. And so until Jesus came, the law was given. Ordained through angels? Um, by the agency of a mediator, what does that mean? We'll, we'll take those two one at a time. First of all, when Moses recalled receiving the law, listen to what he said about angels. Deuteronomy thirty-three two. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir, and he shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of ten, ten thousand holy ones. The Hebrew word is Kadesh. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. 10,000 holy ones. And so the old rabbis read that and taught that the law came via the administration of angels. God brought the law, but he gave it to the angels who handed it then to Moses. And this thinking carried over into the New Testament. Stephen When he's giving his witness, his testimony, Acts chapter 7 verse 53, he said, You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. So Stephen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, confirms that the law was received through angels. I don't know exactly how that works. I wasn't there. But then in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 2, it says, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How will, we, how will we escape if we neglect grace? Because even the angels are witnesses to the giving of the law which was perfect. And you either keep it or you die. So angels are involved. They had something to do with the delivery of the law to Moses. And the second part of the verse is then a little easier. It was given uh, by the agency, or the ordained through angels, by the agency of a mediator. The mediator? Moses. Moses was the go-between. The mediator of the law, the one who got the law, brought it to the people. So what's the point? What's Paul getting at? Moses? Angels? Paul is here very clearly contrasting the law with the promise. Law and promise. The law came indirectly through the angels to Moses and eventually to the people, but the promise came directly to Abraham. Right? I mean, does that make sense? Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay, so the the promise came directly. God spoke it to Abraham. He didn't use angels. He didn't use a mediator. He just came straight to the man. Guess what? That's how it works today. The promise comes direct to you from Jesus. Grace comes direct to you from Jesus. There is no other mediator. In fact, later Paul would write 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. The law had to go through intermediaries. The promise straight to you from the heart of Jesus Himself. What are you saying, Paul? I'm saying the promise is better than the law. If you're listening with Jewish ears, that might be a little offensive. Read verse 20. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Okay, so the promise given directly through Jesus far outshines the law, which is given indirectly because there are go-betweens. And again, Jewish ears might be horrified thinking that Paul is just dismissing the law as now irrelevant, and so he clarifies the fact. Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life... Then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the balance is beautiful, and, and Paul's reasoning here is spirit inspired. That, yes, the law is perfect. That's not the problem. We are the problem. We can't keep the law. The law is not bad, it's perfectly good. But we can't keep it. So we desperately need grace. Verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Miss Basil was my first grade, actually, yeah, my first grade teacher. I remember Miss Basil. She was wonderful. She was the first one who believed in me, my first grade teacher, not my junior first grade teacher. I think I was 27 years old when I found out junior first was not a thing. And I failed out of first grade. I repeated first grade. I mean, I was shocked. And my junior first teacher, as my parents called it, junior first, to lessen the blow that I was going to repeat first grade, my junior first teacher, Miss Baldwin, we called her Baldo, she was a harsh woman. Didn't appreciate her at all. But Miss Basil comes along. And she was kind, and she had a jar filled with M&Ms, and you got one when you did good stuff. And I liked Miss Basil, and she was the, pr- honestly, and I'm all kidding aside, first time in my life where I actually wanted to go to school was in her class. There were many years after it I didn't want to go to school anymore, but in her class, I wanted to go. She was a great tutor, a great schoolmaster. But the day came when I actually did graduate first grade and went on to second. <laughs> Having learned enough, I no longer required the services of Miss Basil. And that's the deal. The law brings us to Jesus. The law is good. The law is perfect. The law points us in the direction of Christ. In fact, that's what David wrote, isn't it? Psalm 19.7 The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the, the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Why? Because they lead us to Christ. The beauty of the law Is it leads me to the Messiah about whom the law is written, the one seed. And we're right back to him. And the promise is to Jesus and it is through Jesus. So, so that only by faith in Jesus can a person receive grace. And with that, Paul gives us an airtight explanation of salvation. It's perfect. It is faith in God's grace. Well, verse 26, he says, For you all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. I love that. That is perhaps my favorite, I think that is my favorite verse related to baptism in the entire Bible. Because of what it defines, what it describes. Make no mistake about it. Baptism, baptizo, the Greek word as used throughout Scripture is full immersion, following faith in water. Baptizo means to be fully immersed, and the baptism talked about in the New Testament is following faith. I believe and I'm baptized. I choose to be baptized as an outward expression of the inward faith decision and the miracle that God is working in me. Not that the water saves me, but I'm baptized following that decision of fame. And I am fully immersed. And I think that's important. Let me explain why. Strong's lexicon tells us the following. The clearest example that shows the meaning of baptizo in the Greek text is from the Greek poet physician Nicander around 200 BC. He uses the word. He uses it in a recipe for making pickles. You'll remember this one. <laughs> It is helpful because in this recipe of Nicander, he uses two words. He says that in order to make a pickle, the vegetable should first be dipped, that's babto, should be dipped in boiling water and then immersed, baptizo, in the vinegar solution. And Strong's says both verbs concern the immersing of vegetables in a solution. I think that's perfect because when we get baptized, it's like immersing a vegetable into a solution. I'm not smart enough to figure out my salvation. I just believe in Jesus, man, and dip me. But then he says the verbs concern the immersing of vegetables. The first, bapto, is temporary. But the second, baptizo, the word for baptism... The act of baptizing the vegetable produces a permanent change. As in a pickle. Now the vegetable is a pickle. Permanently. It doesn't go back to not being a pickle anymore. Once a pickle, always a pickle. I think is the phrase. Something like that. (laughs) Baptism represents then a permanent change. Not something you did in the flesh. Remember, it is not flesh that makes spirit. It is spirit that births flesh. But it represents what the Spirit has done. Something that is a permanent change in you. You are soaked and you are saturated with the one seed. But note this. Paul, he describes it, I think, even better than pickles. I'm kind of thankful that's not the biblical description. of it. It's like a pickle, Paul said. No. He says, don't you know that when you are baptized with Christ, you are clothed? You are clothed with Christ. Cheryl's not here, so I I can tell you about this. Um, She she got a new uh, American Eagle sweater for Christmas. And she liked it so much that she gazed at me with adoring eyes, batted her eyes a few times and said, Could I buy three more sweaters? So they all came in the mail this last week. And the sweaters, I kid you not, are American Eagle ah, amazingly soft sweaters. That's what they're called. Ah, there's like four H's. Ah, amazingly soft sweaters. And they're super soft. And she loves to wear them. And she's covered with them. And, and, and that, that kind of came to mind when I was thinking about we are clothed. To be clothed with Christ is to be completely covered, head to toe covered by His grace. There is no part that is missing. i I baptized people before, and I think this is kind of funny, when a hand comes up out of the water, you know, or someone goes under and their hand doesn't quite get under, or maybe their head doesn't quite get under, and so you think, well, in heaven, they're just going to be missing the top of their head. <laughs> it's okay, they're here, we all get it, you didn't quite get all the way in. No, the idea is that we are completely covered by Grace. Then there is no aspect of my life that is not covered by the grace of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah said, Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. In other words, Jesus has you covered. That's grace. And in verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. No racial divide. No class warfare. No gender inequality. You are all one in Christ. Just the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. When Paul says this, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female... He's actually pinging off a Jewish morning prayer. It's a prayer that Jewish men used to pray traditionally and they would pray this, Lord, I thank You that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. I am thankful that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman, and in the Spirit, Paul takes up that prayer and revises it with the truth of the Gospel which is pure equality for all at the foot of the cross. Everybody equal in Christ Jesus. And our culture needs to hear that. In verse 29, he says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Belong to Christ, by the way, it's just one word, it's it's Christu. Christu is the word Christ in the possessive form of the name. You belong to Christ. When Jesus possesses you, holds fast to you, covers you, you join the seed. And by the way, if you join the seed, guess what happens? You become a son. And we'll talk about that next week. It is by grace we are saved. And Lord, we trust You for that. Thank You for Your Word to us. And thank You for covering us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.